As you're taking your seat, you can grab your Bible and you can open up to Galatians chapter five. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are the front here and they're gonna walk towards the back. You can just slip your hand up in the air and they'll get a Bible across to you. And if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you today. Just keep it, take it home. We trust that you'll be blessed and encouraged by God's word. We are continuing to move through the fruit of the spirit and we only have two weeks left and, and this should be a very familiar passage to you by now. I, I hope uh, you can quote it by memory. I would encourage you, if you don't know this by heart yet, to commit this to memory because this is how you can tell if the gospel is truly having an impact in your life. It, it is, as our series has been, the way that the Spirit of God shows us how we are being transformed. It's evidence of the power of God at work in our lives. And here's what Paul says. He says, in contrast to the work of the flesh, he says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit that God has deposited into us the moment of our conversion, our regeneration, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In 1839, uh, a man by the name of George Bethune said this. He said, perhaps no grace is less prayed for or less cultivated than gentleness. Seldom do we reflect that not to be gentle is a sin. I, I got to confess to you uh, that I did a lot of repenting this week there are certain fruit of the Spirit, aspects of the fruit of the Spirit that just seem to kind of slap you around a little bit more than the others. Am I right on that? Like every week you're kind of like, okay, I'm do here's where I'm stacking up here. Here's where I know. If, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know there are specific aspects of the fruit that you're like, this is kind of what God really is trying to work on in me. And I just can tell you this, that a gentleness does not come naturally to me. Um, it is certainly uh, evidence of the sinful flesh that's still present in my own life. Um, by, by nature, by a sinful nature, gentleness is, is hard for me. I, I struggle with pride like the rest of you, which is obviously connected with a lack of gentleness. I am um, competitive by nature to a fault, which means I am not gentle when I am competing. And I, I find that this becomes an area of my life that God is continually wanting to hone and refine. And so I just want you to know that as you're getting the hammer of gentleness on your heart today, I have actually had it all week long, if that makes you feel better. And I think the re one of the reasons, at least, why we don't consider to... Uh, lack gentleness as actually sin, I think is because our culture promotes the opposite of gentleness as a virtue. And this is actually nothing new. In fact, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, the time in which Paul was writing his letter to the Galatian church, gentleness was not a sought-out virtue at all. 
In fact, he was often despised. Uh, For men in particular, this should come as no surprise, it was actually associated with weakness. Real men were neither gentle nor humble. Real men were strong, powerful, and dominant. They were winners and they made sure everyone knew it. Gentleness so often seems, it seems opposed to power and strength, and yet what we find out when we come to the Word of God is that gentleness is actually born out of power, not out of weakness. Of course, there's a false kind of gentleness that masks fear, timidity, and cowardice, But that should not be confused with true gentleness, which can and must exist alongside power and strength and courage and conviction. Gentleness, after all, is an attribute of God himself. Power and gentleness coexist side by side perfectly in the person of God. We see this in a number of different places in Scripture, but let me just read to you. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to this, because in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10 and 11, we have held together side by side, as if they're holding hands, this picture of the power of God and the gentleness of God. It says this, Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And then following that statement of power, listen to this. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is a picture, this beautiful picture of both strength and gentleness, of both toughness and tenderness. And Psalm 103.13 says this, it says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. I mean, we have a God who's so gentle. The book of Deuteronomy, if you were to to read, especially in chapter 1, Deuteronomy depicts God as a caring father. And the way it does this is that it describes him as carrying his his son, which in, in this context is the nation of Israel, carrying his son through the wilderness after he's rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Gentleness is an attribute of God. God is gentleness. So it should not surprise us to see, as we've seen every week, that Jesus himself is gentle. That doesn't mean that Jesus never raised his voice or stood up to others. He did. There are plenty of examples of this in the scripture. Jesus had courage and conviction, and he was willing to say hard things. But, but listen, for those of you who love that side of Jesus, listen, his greatest strength was seen in his gentleness. In fact, Dane Ortland has written in his masterful book, 
entitled Gentle and Lowly, in only one place, listen to this, in only one place, perhaps the most wonderful words ever uttered by human lips, do we hear Jesus himself open up to us his very heart. What place is this? It's in Matthew chapter 11, and I'll draw your attention to it on the slide. You're welcome to turn there if you want, but listen, listen to the heart of Jesus. The only place Jesus defines himself in such specific terms, he says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, listen, 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 for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The one and only time Jesus defines his heart, he he opens up his chest, so to speak, to reveal his heart at the very core of his being, who he is and who he will always be. How does Jesus describe his deepest self? Gentle and lowly. This This is amazing to consider. Gentleness is just who he is at the most profound level of his being, and it's who he's calling us to be as a reflection of him in this world. One of Christianity's most brilliant theologians, Jonathan Edwards, he he taught us that gentleness, he called it a lamb-like, listen to this, I love this, a lamb-like, dove-like spirit. Let's let that sit on you for a minute. What a a, a vivid picture of gentleness. A lamb-like, dove-like spirit. He says it's not an optional extra, but instead he goes on, he says this, the true and distinguishing disposition of the hearts of Christians. That's how he describes gentleness. It is the true and distinguishing disposition of the hearts of Christians. So the Father is gentle, the Son is gentle, the Spirit is gentle in trying to produce the the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness within us. So here's the million-dollar question. Listen, are you gentle? Or perhaps the better question, what should gentleness look like in my life? I want to look at this in three ways. First, gentleness is cultivated when I am meek, not mean. When I am meek, not mean. One Bible dictionary defines the Greek word that Paul uses here in Galatians 5 as gentleness of attitude and behavior in contrast with harshness in one's dealings with others. And then he goes on to to describe it like this as synonymous, gentleness, meekness, mildness. It's an old line in a children's hymn. Some of you uh, may be familiar with it. Most of you probably not, but it's this. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, thou wast once a little child. In our current cultural moment, even in our, our current Christian moment, I would suggest that outrage and aggression has actually become more expected than surprising. It's become more normative than strange, more encouraged than discouraged, more rewarded than rejected. And I think in our increasingly hyper-politicized environment, apparently the way to win is by being the biggest jerk. 
And that's not something I, I'm simply making up by observation. This is something I, I regularly hear in the world around us, that there's a sense of, listen, if they're going to be a jerk, I need to be a jerk too. If they're going to be strong, I've got to be stronger. And, and I think in many ways, many Christians have imbibed this kind of worldly idea. They, they think there's something noble about being in the Jerks for Jesus Club. You need to be mean in order to win an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of stuff. You know, when someone slaps you on the right cheek, punch them in the throat. <laughs> Gouge his eye, bite, devour. Listen, no blow is too low. That, that's the way of the world, okay? In many, in many ways, that's the way of the world. Not in every way, but I think oftentimes we see that kind of disposition, that kind of approach in the world, but that is not the heart or the way of Jesus. When somebody slaps you on the right cheek, what did Jesus say? Just give to him the other also. Jesus is calling us to be meek, not mean. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, listen, he's dealing with a very difficult church where people are constantly at each other and fighting and nattering and competing and, and they're harsh with one another and they're trying to uh, uh, you know, position themselves with power over other people. Listen to what he says in, in chapter 10, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. He says this, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Isn't that amazing? I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. He's like, listen, I'm coming to you with the meekness and gentleness of Jesus himself. Gentleness and meekness are in many ways synonymous with each other. Jesus, it's interesting, in describing the citizens of his kingdom in the Beatitudes, the, the, the first part of Matthew chapter five, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, listen to this. The virtue that best describes those who will inherit the earth. In other words, those who will enjoy the eternal kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth that awaits all who trust in Jesus Christ. You know what he uses? You know what word he describes to use, or excuse me, to, to describe those who will inherit the earth? Here's what he says. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And you know what's really fascinating is that Jesus is actually just simply quoting from Psalm 37. He's reaching back to the Old Testament. And if you were to go back, we don't have time right now, but if you went back and you read Psalm 37, here's what you see. You see the righteous who are being persecuted by the wicked and unrighteous, the evil. You see power in the world and authority in the world. You see people trampling on other people in the world. And then the the response that is given for those who love Yahweh God is, is the meek shall inherit the land. So he contrasts, listen, the world, the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of God and, and he says this, listen, in contrast with violent and wicked people who try to establish the kingdoms of this world by force and by evil and by power, listen, with the meek, those are the ones who wait upon the Lord and delight themselves in abundant peace. And we have this, this 
interesting kind of example given to us in scripture of somebody else who's meek. If you wanted a human example apart from Jesus, I I love the example that the scripture upholds to us. What better kind of illustration than what the scripture upholds, right? Moses. And in Numbers chapter 12, I'll put it on the screen here. You can turn there if you like, but in Numbers chapter 12, one of the things we see is that we're given this picture of meekness in the, the, the person of Moses. Now remember, Moses is the God-appointed leader, an anointed leader who led God's people out of captivity from Egypt, and he faced many challenges as he did so. Um, he's leading arguably over a million people through the wilderness, and he's dealing with so many different hardships. And aside from the grumbling and complaining of the masses that happens on more than one occasion, he had to deal with attacks, criticism, and jealousy, and rejection at times from his own family members, those who were supposed to be standing with him and beside him and supporting him in the calling that God had given him. And it's so fascinating that in chapter 11, before we get to the passage here, in chapter 11, um, you have Moses, or sorry, Aaron and Miriam, his brother and sister, um, attacking his spiritual authority, questioning his spiritual authority. And then here's what we come across in chapter 12, verses one through three. Miriam and Aram spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married. First of all, they attack his wife. (laughs) But that's not the real issue at hand. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, here we're getting to the heart of it. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? See the jealousy there. Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And then interestingly, in, this, in the context of Moses being attacked and criticized and kind of torn to shreds, isn't it amazing that God chooses this context to tell us these next words? Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now, listen. That is not what you expect to hear about the leader of a massive organization of people, is it? Meekest person on the earth. No, I think we, we rightly, in some sense, because we're, we're in this world, think, well, he must be strong and dominant and powerful and aggressive. I mean, he just like, he, he doesn't take any garbage from anybody. He's decisive and he's clear. And the meekest person on the face of the earth. That's the leader of God's people in this context. He's under attack, and isn't it amazing that he's just calm, it seems like he's just calm and quiet. And I I find it instructive that his meekness is highlighted in the context of criticism and confrontation because, listen, if we're honest, that is the time where we are least likely to be gentle with others, isn't it? I think that's exactly why God places it here. It's this powerful built-in illustration where our natural flesh wants to lash out, wants to defend, wants to be harsh, wants to wield our authority over other people. Here's what we see. He's the meekest person on earth. And God is calling us to to be meek, not, not mean. 
Because to be mean and to lash out in these contexts is our fleshly disposition. That's the part of us we're striving to put to death according to Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And, and yet one of the things we see, listen, the Bible repeatedly tells us that we're gonna be placed in circumstances where our gentleness is going to be tested and where it can most clearly be seen, and it's no mistake that it's in difficult context. I, I think, for example, of 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter is telling us, listen, sometimes our faith is going to be under attack. How do you respond? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So as somebody's attacking you for your faith, always be ready to tell them about why you have hope in Jesus Christ. Yet, look at this, look at this. Do it with gentleness and respect. Paul told Titus in Titus 3.12 to teach his people this, that remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then the End of Paul's letter in Philippians, listen to what he says in Philippians 4, verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness, some of you will have a note in your Bible that will drop down kind of a footnote, and it will tell you this, this word can be translated as gentleness. It's amazing, isn't it, that gentleness is often associated with reasonableness. Let your gentleness, reasonableness be made known to who? To just some people? To Everyone. Why? I love this. He kind of put some emphasis on it, right? This is like a, a, a triple exclamation point because the Lord's at hand. Your ability to be gentle in every context has everything to do with the mission God has given you to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord's coming back and people need to know that our God, listen, our God isn't right now before he returns. He's not this angry God up there just shaking his fist. No, in, in fact, just the opposite. God is gentle. God is actually wanting people to come to him and he's not just going to scold those who come to him. He's going to welcome them with a gospel love and grace and hospitality. So let's just apply some of this to our lives and, and maybe I can, I can do this by asking us um, some questions, maybe, maybe looking at three specific kind of circumstances, okay? Consider this, how do I respond when I am approached? Now I mean this in two ways. The first way is just simply when people come to you. Do you have a, a, a bristly, rough disposition or are you tender and inviting? Do you just look mean? Some of you are like, you know, you, you know the Proverbs says a, a cheerful heart makes a glad face. Some of you are like, listen, I was just born this way. It's my resting face. I just look angry all the time. <laughs> do, you, do you project a gentleness that, uh, that welcomes others to you, draws them in because there's this soft tenderness to you that's, unmistakable. How about this? When you're approached in the sense of criticism, this is where true gentleness is really, really tested, isn't it? Do you project the kind of gentleness that welcomes the opinions of others, that doesn't quickly judge or condemn people who disagree with you? Do people feel like they can constructively criticize you? 
Or are, are you just blunt and abrupt? Are you insensitive and dismissive? Are you abrasive and harsh? Are you on the attack when you feel like you are attacked? Can I just urge you, remind you that meekness is not weakness. It's Christ-likeness. And I want to encourage you that when you're approached, when you're criticized, receive criticism with charity. Believe that even if it's not done in the best of ways, that there may be some truth in there that you'd actually need to hear in order to grow. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Don't, don't, don't just lash out the moment somebody brings something to your attention. In fact, I would encourage you, listen, if you haven't done this already, have a circle of people in your life where you invite that kind of criticism, where you, you're just, I, I, want, I respect you, I love you, I know you're watching my life, I want you to, to let me know what are areas of my life that are, are not in line with the word of God, that aren't looking like Jesus Christ. Would you speak into that? Invite it, consider it, and thank God for it when it comes because the goal in our life listen, is not to be defensive and to stay where we are. It's to grow and become more like Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, how about this? Um, how do I respond when I'm attacked? This is beyond criticism, okay? Uh, what I'm talking about here is, is when it's unjust, when it's harsh, when you're misunderstood, when you're intentionally maligned, when you're, when you're persecuted, Gentleness is often seen in the way that we respond to conflicts and quarrels. In the way we respond to rejection, to unfair treatment, to harsh words spoken against us. And it's seen, listen, not with rage and self-defense, not with harsh and aggressive words, not with angry gestures or facial expressions, but with softness, controlling both our tongue and our temper and I would encourage you, when you are attacked, listen, endure attacks graciously, calmly, even quietly. And, and you know who the best example of this is? Did you, can you think of anybody who endured unjust attacks? Just anybody come to mind? This is when it's appropriate to say the Sunday school answer. Jesus, yes, yeah. Right, he opened not his mouth, he, he endured. Now listen, that's not saying that we should simply and always allow people to, to run roughshod over us. That's not what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about the, the kind of normal disposition of gentleness that's expected of us, the turn the other cheek kind of disposition that is so hard and yet so like Jesus. Lastly, how do I respond when I'm angry? I don't know about you, but this is, isn't this, this is the hardest time to be gentle, isn't it? When you're angry, like when you've reached your boiling point, when you're, you know, you know you're, list, you're just, maybe, maybe for some of you, maybe probably not for all of you, because in the moment of anger, we just go kind of like, everything goes red, right? And, and I don't know if you've ever had this moment where you're like, be angry and do not sin, be angry and do not sin, be angry, okay, I'm just, I'm about to sin, I'm just gonna go for it. Isn't it, it's, it's the reason why Paul has to say that. Right? Be angry and do not sin because our anger can lead us to sin so, so quickly. And, and our, in our anger, listen, we can do so much damage. We can be so rough and abrasive when we get angry. Can, can we not parents with our kids? Our words can, can be a 
daggers to their hearts. We can, we can tear them down in moments of our anger. Husbands, you know, what does Paul say? Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Why does Paul have to say that, men? Because it's so easy, isn't it? In our anger and in our pride, when, when we're just boiling over the top to be harsh and mean-spirited, to hurt. I would just encourage you, listen, when you're angry, and maybe when you're in the heat of a moment, a gentle response can be strong, firm, clear, but without vicious rage. In fact, Proverbs 15:1 says that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I think that's true in dealing with somebody else. I also think that's true in your own heart. I, I think, isn't it, isn't it amazing how oftentimes um, um, the soft word you give to somebody else has a way of actually dissipating the anger in your own heart? Let me encourage you to, when you're angry, take it to the Lord, don't take it out on the person. Run to the Lord with it. Gentleness is cultivated when I am meek, not mean. Secondly, when I am lowly, not lifted. When I am lowly, not lifted. This has to do, obviously, with our humility and our pride. How we view ourselves. I want you to notice again, in Matthew chapter 11, just remember the words of Jesus when he described his heart. He says, I am gentle and, what word? Lowly. And gentleness and lowliness are, are almost synonymous. There's incredible overlap in these two ideas. I think lowliness in some sense nuances gentleness. It explains the gentleness. And, and it carries this idea of being humble, of stooping low, of having a low posture or disposition of heart. I want you to consider what Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 3 on the screen here. He says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is the exact opposite of how we typically live our lives, right? We typically live our lives, if we're, if we're honest, and even if we're unaware of it, as if we are more significant than everybody else. It's the default position. I'm looking out for number one. Could take care of me. You know, on an airplane, when they tell you to put the, you know, the mask on yourself first before you help someone else, you're like, amen. That's the natural disposition of the human heart. And Paul would go on in chapter two of Philippians to hold out the example of Christ who took on the form of a servant. Talk about lowly. In other words, Jesus is upheld as the servant king who condescends to the lowest position imaginable, especially relative to who he is, okay? The, the lowliness of Jesus needs to be understood relative to who he is by his nature. He is the highest 
person in the universe. He is the highly exalted one, Peter or Paul would go on to say in Philippians 2. He has the name that is above every name, the name to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the king of the universe, the creator of the universe. He rules and reigns with power and majesty, and yet he takes on the form of the lowest servant of all. The disparity between who he is and who he chooses to become is incalculable. It's unfathomable. The one who is highly exalted is is willing to make himself lowly and gentle. And here's all I can say is when I think about this, when I really think about this, all I can do is think what a king we serve. What a king he is. And in the Old Testament, we actually, we, we first read about Israel's uh, first king in the book of 1 Samuel. You, you can, if you want to flip there, actually, this would be a great passage to look at briefly. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And, and in the context of 1 Samuel, again, uh, Israel had never had a, a king before. And here, you know, they had previously been judged by, by judges and prophets had led the way, Samuel being a, um, the foremost. And Israel was, was now beginning to look around at all the other nations and they wanted to be just like the other nations. That's a, that's a, a, you know, a flag on the field, okay? They're like, we want, we want to be like the other nations. Well, what do all the other nations have that we don't have? They have a king. And in fact, it says this in verse 20 of chapter 8, at the end of the chapter, it says, this is what they say, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us, listen to this, and fight our battles. They want a warrior king. They're looking at the nations and they're like, these guys got, the guys who are impressive. They're powerful. They're strong. I mean, I mean, they're intimidating. We need a king like that to represent us. And the problem wasn't that they wanted a king, okay? Some people are confused about this, as if the idea of wanting a king was something bad. That's not true. God had been preparing them to have a king. In fact, we've read this in Genesis. God had actually told Abraham and Sarah that kings would come from their lines. He was preparing them for a king. We know this because we know the Bible. (laughs) The problem was they wanted a king that was like all the other nations. They had a, a worldly version of the king that they were elevating, that they were desiring. That was impressive by the world's standards. And Samuel, initially, in chapter 8, he's kind of offended by this. And I think in one sense, rightly so. Verse 7, it says this, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have, reject, have not rejected you, listen to this, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Do you see that? Actually, God was their king. And they were kind of like, listen, God, we just want somebody who looks visibly more impressive than you. We can't even see you, God. A 
And so God gives them the kind of king that they want. But, but listen, he warns them first. God says to Samuel, he's like, give them the king, but I want you to warn them first. And, and in verse 10, he begins to kind of unfold this. The word of the Lord to the people comes. Look at verse 11. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Notice these words right here. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And some will plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Look at verse 30. He will take, listen to these words, this is powerful. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and will give them to his uh, to his servants, he will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to the officers, his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants. Look at verse seven. He will take a tenth of. He's going to take, 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 take. He will look out for numero uno. That's the kind of king you ask for. That's the kind of king I'm going to give you. That's what you get when you want to abandon my benevolent kingship over your life. All the other kings you will serve will ultimately, listen, end up taking, taking, taking. In other words, he's going to look out, not primarily for their interests, but for his interests. He will not be lowly, he will be lifted. He will think highly of himself because of his position and his power. And so Saul is chosen. And the text is amazing. You know, if you know the story, it's, it's pretty incredible. Tall, he's, you know, he's tall, dark, and handsome, okay? He's, he's like a foot taller than everybody else. It's, and it draws attention to the physical reality of who he is because he's trying to show you the point, right? The point that we're going to later read about in chapter 16, that, the, that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And earlier in the word of God, you know, Saul, by the way, is a disastrous king. He's a disaster. Because he's, he's exalted himself. He's lifted above the people. And it's interesting, earlier in the, the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, we're actually told that this is going to be a potential reality, and kings are warned about this. And look at what it says to help kings not be lifted, but to remain lowly. Look at Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 20. It says this, and when he, speaking of the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That is his heart. Look, that his heart, look at this, may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. 
He was supposed to to have a copy of God's word that he would make with his own hand. He was supposed to read it every single day. Why? Why? Because as he read the word of God, he was perpetually being reminded of who his God was, the only one who was worthy of praise, the only one who was high and lifted up, and he was perpetually reminded that everything he was and everything he had was sheer mercy and grace, and that's it. He would always, if he was a man of the word, he would never think too highly of himself. He would always look at God and say, God, you are merciful to sinners like me. The deepest roots of gentleness, listen, are found in genuine humility, okay? This is so crucial. The deepest roots of gentleness are always found in genuine humility, a lowliness that is characterized by a deep awareness that I am just as human and flawed and tempted and frail and like dust, like every other person. It's, you know, the saying when we look at the cross of Christ is this, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You ever heard that expression? Ground's level at the foot of the cross. God doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care what you've accomplished. God's not ranking you and saying, well, this person, look at, look at how valuable they are compared to this person. Look at what they've done. Look at their socioeconomics. Look at the amount of money in their bank. Look at, look at their career. Look at their aspirations. Look how strong and mighty they are. Look at their noble birth that they have. He doesn't look at any of that. You come to the foot of the cross and you realize that you're a sinner in need of a savior. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everyone is welcome. And we all get in the same way. By grace, through faith. That's it. And I just listen, as you read your Bible, I, I hope you're in your Bible. Listen, hear, hear the command that was given to the king and realize that this command is as necessary for you and for me today. You want to stay low? Listen, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is what the word of God says. You want to stay low? You want to be blessed by God? Then be a person of the word of God. Get in there every day as if your life depends upon it. Memorize it, meditate upon it, love it, and live it. God would stir the, strip the kingdom away from, from Saul, and he would give it to a man after his own heart. Who, who is that man? We know, right? Son of Jesse. But, but not just any son. Not the son that Samuel thought. All of the the sons, the impressive sons, were brought out before Samuel, and God was going to tell him which one he was going to anoint, and he gets to the end of the line after he looked at all these impressive young men, and God's like, none of these, and Samuel's kind of like, I'm paraphrasing, so he's like, really, God? He's like, there's one more. He's like, what? And where where do we find David? David, the, the, the youngest son, where do we find him? Out in the field watching, tending his father's flocks. He's a shepherd, a man after God's own heart, a a man who knows the word of God and who would write the word of God. He loved God. Just read the Psalms he wrote. You cannot get away from how much he loved God. God chooses the man that we wouldn't choose this lowly shepherd, a despised position in the ancient world, 
we see that the king God chooses will be a gentle shepherd. No wonder David can pen the words of Psalm 23. You ever think about that? Oh, Lord, you are my shepherd. David is good. Jesus is better. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is gentle and lowly, and he humbled himself by becoming one of us, but more than that, by dying instead of us. You see, gentleness always has the good of others in mind. It is a heart that wants to help, not harm, to heal and not hurt, which is why, lastly, gentleness is cultivated when I am blessing, not breaking. What was the point of Christ's humility? The point in saying that that Jesus is, is lowly or humble The point is actually fairly simple, but it is so profound. The reason why Jesus points out that he is gentle and lowly, the reason why Paul says that he is humble is because they want us to know that he is accessible and approachable. For all his his magnificent and incomparable glory and power, the one in human history who has been never been more approachable and accessible is the person of Jesus Christ. He became low in order to bring us near and lift us up. When Jesus describes his own heart, he does so because he's extending an invitation, and that's what we saw in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me. That's the invitation. Come to me. Why Why can you come to him? Why can you approach him? Why? Because he's gentle and lowly. The disposition of the heart of Jesus, in other words, is not to look at you in your sin and point a finger and wave it at you and shake his fist in your face and how dare you. No, the disposition of Jesus is this. Come. My arms are open to you. It's an invitation to blessing. His heart is to bless, not break, And I think in our sin, we often fear coming to Jesus because we are convinced in his holiness that he's angry with us. Some of us are convinced that we need to clean ourselves up so that we'll be acceptable to him, but he's saying, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. I'm not interested in you cleaning yourself up. You don't understand my character. You don't understand my heart. I am gentle and lowly, and if you can come to me, if you can come to me in brokenness, if you bring your weariness to me, you can come and I will give rest to your soul. In Matthew chapter 12, Verse 18 through 21, we're given this picture of the servant, the, the king who would come, the servant of God. And, and I love it so much. It, he quotes from Isaiah, and here's what he says. He says, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. 
And in his name, the Gentiles, <clears throat> Gentiles will hope. A bruised reed, he will not break. You know, gentleness is, is handling something that is fragile according to its nature so that it does not break or so that it, you know, there's not even the threat of it breaking. There's this famous scene in the greatest, <clears throat> greatest movie of all time, The Mighty Ducks, just <laughs> where Coach Bombay is trying to teach these ragtag group of kids the fundamentals of hockey. They can't even pass or receive a puck properly. They just kind of slap it around aggressively, and it bounces off their blades violently. And so he, he takes away all of their pucks, and he gives them a bunch of eggs instead. Now, first, there's just smashed eggs all over the place. But pretty soon, they learn to carefully and softly slide the egg across the ice, gently receive it and cradle it on their blade. They learn to handle something according to its nature so that it does not break. And Jesus is saying, I'm looking at you, people who are fragile, who are weak, who are burdened, who are weary. You're like a bruised reed. You've got no strength left. You're just bent right over. And he looks at you and he says, a bruised reed I will not break. I will strengthen you. I will build you up. I will bless you. There's so many ways in which we're called to do this, but I think it's maybe more important that we simply just acknowledge that Jesus is the one who wants to bless, not break, and we are called to emulate this in our lives. He wants us to be a people who bless and not break. He wants us to be fighting to build others up. He wants us not to be fixated on quarreling, but to correct one another with gentleness. He wants us to restore people in a spirit of gentleness, not reject them when they fall into sin. He wants us to be a gentle people because we have a gentle Savior. Jesus' invitation is come to me and I will give you rest. Those who are the weary and the heavy laden those who are the bruised, you say, who, who's the weary, who's the heavy laden, who's the bruised reed that he's talking about? Here it is, listen, it's those who feel the weight of their sin. He invites you to come and take his yoke. This is what Matthew 11 says. A, a yoke is this heavy kind of crossbeam that was put across the, the neck of the oxen in order to drag farm equipment across the field. It was heavy, it was burdensome, it was hard. And Jesus uses this kind of irony here to say that his yoke is easy. It's, his yoke is a non-yoke. In fact, it's, it's a buoy, not a burden, okay? It's a buoy, not a burden. He removes the burden of your sin in your weariness and brokenness. He takes the, the burden off of you, that crossbeam, and he places it upon his own shoulders. He bears the burden of sin for you, and then he takes off the 
robe of his righteousness and he drapes it over your shoulders. And what you find out is this, listen, that the weight of sin that was holding you down, that was sucking you down, that was drowning you in condemnation and shame and in guilt, it is instantly removed and the righteousness of Christ is like a life jacket that brings you up to the top of the water so you can breathe again. And it carries you all the way through the winds and the waves of this life into the ocean of his eternal grace. If if you're weary from your sin, if you're burdened by your sin, he says, listen, come. He's gentle and he's lowly. He's meek and he's mild. And Christ lavishes us with every blessing and he invites us to embrace his gentleness, to experience his gentleness, and by the power of his spirit to embody his gentleness as we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I want you to be reminded of the words of Jesus. He is gentle and lowly. You can come again to him.